We did, as all of you know, had a wonderful, wonderful Feast of Tabernacles, and I want to report a new uh, development that just came out the other day. I was talking to Mr. Rob McNair, who works in church administration, doing about 15 or 25 different things. He works very hard, but he helped put together the numbers from all over the world, and we kept waiting for more to come in to get up to 9,000. And finally, the other day, we discovered a whole bunch of people in Vanuatu that had not been recorded. So I can report very happily that we have a new all-time record for the Global or Living Church of God feast attendance. We had a total attendance so far. There may be some more come in, but so far we have 9,029. So we broke the 9,000 mark, and that's the first time that's happened, so we're grateful for that. Now, that's very good, and we are happy. We know, brethren, and I certainly know, numbers are not the main thing, but we are glad to have more human beings that are acting on the truth, and we're grateful uh, for that in every way. So we are blessed in many ways, and as Mr. League pointed out, we had a wonderful turnout for the campaign that uh, Dr. Pierre just had in Haiti down there, and we're grateful for the way those campaigns are going all over and for the new people that are coming in and hearing the truth. But, brethren... Many of you know that we have a whole lot of sick people uh, right here in this area and in other parts of the world. We do have an unusual number of sick people, and I want to point that out to you today. We desperately, deeply need more and more divine healing, and that is one of God's promises. And when I came to Ambassador College back in 1949, there were a lot more healings in the church and one reason for that is that there was an atmosphere of faith in the nation as a whole, not as it should have been, but they still read the Bible, talked about the Bible, had Bible questions, and there was a general atmosphere of belief in God at least, and that sometimes carries over into the church. As Dr. Hayes said, the church to a limited extent sometimes even reflects problems in the world. And Mr. Herbert Armstrong was an unusual man of faith. He really did. He was very human. He made mistakes. We don't worship him. But he did have an awful lot of faith. And you could just feel that, especially in the early days. Later on, he got to traveling around the world. And then it seemed like the healings went down. And he remarked about that himself. Not once, but five or ten times. He says sometimes in our ministerial meetings, he says, fellas, sometimes we get so involved in all the administrative things that we're doing in the work and our trips and our meetings and our going on north stations and spending more money building buildings and doing this and that, that we don't devote ourselves to seeking God and we don't have the personal faith that we used to have. And so the healings did diminish Almost every five years, you could sort of see that as the church went along. And today, we don't have the faith that we used to have in the church of God. We really don't. I remember going to the Feast of Tabernacles back in 1953 when our first year there, and people came in great long lines, and so many of them were being healed. And they tell you about it. It was just not little tiny things. Some of them had severe things. And just healing after healing was taking place. But we have lost a lot of that first love. God condemned the Ephesian church for losing their first love. And we had an exhilarating time. Now, we had great mistakes back then. We weren't perfect. Often the motel uh, 
trash cans had too many beer cans or whiskey bottles in them and all that kind of thing at the Feast of Tabernacles. And some of our brethren call it rather the Feast of Booths, the Feast of B-O-O-Z, as some of you know, or Z-E. So we did overdo. We did make mistakes. But there was a zest. There was a zeal for God that we have lost to some extent, and we certainly need to recapture that in every way we possibly can. So I hope we can do that, brethren. Our faith is diminishing, and we've got to rebuild that faith. And I want us to do that. We must restore this part of restoring apostolic Christianity. Remember, that's one of the themes that I have hoped that we would carry out in this work, to restore apostolic Christianity. And that was one of the big things. I gave a sermon just five months ago, somewhat different from this, and I want to make this different because we do have a very serious situation now, and I want to focus on that in this sermon. But we certainly need to restore that part of apostolic Christianity. Turn with me, if you would, back to Isaiah. We're going to go right back to one of the earliest scriptures talking about that. Turn with me to Isaiah 52. I'm going to begin reading in Isaiah 52 and verse 13. And all scholars virtually know that this is talking about the coming Messiah. Behold, Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many as were astonished at you. So his visage was marred more than any man. So his face, after he was beaten and then crucified, and remember they scourged him before he died with a terrible whip, and they also hit him in the face. They hit him with rods or clubs and slapped him, cursed him, perhaps kicked him. That's the way men do, military men. And his face became virtually unrecognizable. And brethren, when you see these pictures in these Bibles and Bible storybooks and all that, usually it shows Jesus looks perfectly normal, but he has a little tiny trickle of blood on his side, like someone pricked him with a safety pin or something. He didn't look like that at all. They beat him up horribly, and we need to understand that. And so his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. It says in verse 53, or chapter 53, Who has believed our report, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant. He has no form nor commonness. He was despised and rejected. He says in verse 4, Surely he, Christ, has borne our griefs. And the literal meaning there is sicknesses. And that's printed in here, not by me, but by the editors. Somehow the King James people put this in here. But the scholars know the word means sicknesses. He has borne our sicknesses and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed and stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And as I explained in the sermon five months ago, we have our part to do. And I don't want to leave that completely out. I'm not going to dwell on that as much today. But we should try to keep the seven laws of health. We should have a good diet. We should obviously get the proper amount of sleep, the proper amount of exercise. We should maintain a positive attitude. 
And many people are sick even in the church because partly because of their attitude. They're all torn up inside. And as the old saying is, it's a very true saying, it's not always what you eat, it's what's eating you. If you're all mad and you're hated and you're just all torn up, it does turn into cancer. It does turn into other things. It does turn into high blood pressure. It does turn into any number of things. So we have to really understand that, brethren. All these things feed into our sicknesses. But if we really repent, all of us, me and my wife and all of us, God will forgive. He forgives that part of our sins. He forgives our physical sins. And God heals us. And healing, as I explained, is part of the forgiveness of sins. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. That's the way it says it right here in the Bible. By his stripes. What do you mean his stripes? When they beat him. And Mr. Ames was pointing out that he saw not in the theater, but at home someone gave him this video of the... Uh, uh, passion of Christ. Some of you saw that in the theater, and I've seen versions of it, and that shows the beating of Christ, and they showed two great, big, powerful men. Now, they may have Hollywoodized it, but nevertheless, it was apparently done sometimes with two men. And two men had a whip, one go, and the other, Ruff! you could just see his whole body shake when those whips tore into his flesh in this movie, Mel Gibson's movie, The Body of Christ. And you see that movie and that whipping he took You'll never forget it. It does brand into your brain what Jesus went through even before he was crucified. And I used to read the commentaries a great deal when I was first starting to teach Bible classes. And a number of the commentaries and historians point out that many men died through that scourging before they were ever able to get them to the stake to crucify them. They just died because they were in shock. Blood was pouring off of them, and they would just die right there. So Christ went through a great deal to pay for our physical sins, and we need to understand that. By His stripes we are, and First Peter 2 says, were, because by then it had been done, were healed. We are all like sheep who have gone astray, turned to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. It says a little later in verse 7, He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, he was killed. He was crucified for us. But I'm dwelling on the healing aspect of it here today. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 8 in your New Testament. Matthew chapter 8. Here, brethren, Jesus was talking here to the disciples and he went into Peter's house and Peter's wife's mother was sick and he healed her. And it says at verse 16, Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all. He didn't just heal some. They didn't have perfect faith. Frankly, there are times when God heals more just to show his power at the beginning of Christ's ministry, at the beginning of Peter's ministry, at the beginning of Paul's ministry, then it seems to fade as you read the Bible because once people know God and then He tests them, He works with them, we're all tried and tested, we have to grow in faith, and then He hears us if we obey Him, and many scriptures tell us that too, but people don't always obey God and they don't trust God. But sometimes God heals them at the beginning just to show them that He's there. I haven't given this example in the recent past, so I'll mention something in my own life. 
right after I was baptized, I didn't have very much faith. I was absolutely a babe. But Mr. Armstrong talked about healing one day in the Sabbath service. And I should have gotten anointed for my face or my eyes or my brain, <laughs> whatever. I got anointed for something much less important. It bothered me, and I saw Mr. Armstrong wore glasses, so I didn't think that was a problem. I had warts all over the back of my hands, great big warts, and they wouldn't go away. And I don't want to bore those of you who heard this, but I, I really did do this. I attacked them. I'm a very intense person, and I took, uh, you know, a late razor blade and cut right down until it bled, and I would take a needle and put in there, and I would cut some, and then I would put mercurochrome on them, and then others said put uh, lemon juice on them. And my mother got scared. She said, Rod, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to bring your, uh, cancer. So you keep cutting on yourself. And so she had me go to the doctor, and he had this special machine called an electric needle. And they ran the electric needle right down to the core. And my, we, I had the healthiest warts west, west of the Mississippi. I was in Pasadena by this time, and they just kept growing right back. So I asked Mr. Armstrong to anoint me for warts just a month or two after I was baptized, and I, I, I had a certain childlike faith. He just seemed so certain these things were going to happen. So as I say, I didn't have as great faith in other ways, but I sort of childly believed that would happen, and it did. But I was on the third floor of Mayfair, the student dormitory, and every morning when my feet would hit the floor, I could remember what room I was in, why the sun was coming in usually, and, and I, would, I would look down at the warts and see if they were still there. And every morning they were still there. And finally, after a month or two, he didn't kill me right away. A month or two after I was anointed, I looked and the warts were not there. And I pulled the sheets back. I thought maybe they'd fall under the sheets. And I looked under the bed. And I'm trying to be funny in this sense. I really mean that. I did do that. I'm kind of like that, you know. I'm hyper and I'm, I want to, I'm from Missouri. I try to check things out. I couldn't find them anyway. They're just gone. God vaporized them or something. He just took them totally away. He healed my warts. And they were not gradually healed. I, almost every day I was looking for them. They were just the same. All of a sudden, bang, over one night they were gone. So God did take them away supernaturally. And I wish now, looking back, maybe I should have had my eyes anointed because always I've worn glasses ever since I was 11 or 12 years old and, and used to get in fights, you know, because of that. Four eyes, four eyes. And so I'd give it to them and they'd give it back to me. And we had quite a time when I was first. I almost got kicked out of school a couple of times. But at any rate, we had, you hated to wear glasses back in those days because not so many kids were wearing glasses as are. Of course, most of them disguise it today. They wear contact lenses. But we didn't have contact lenses back in those days. Anyway, God healed that very early on to encourage me and God does often encourage you at the beginning of your Christian life but then later he lets your faith be tested and many of us don't have much faith to be tested even after five or ten years and we better be sure we start getting that faith so we can have more healings in our life in our family and in God's church today. We really need that, brethren, very, very much, and I hope we can understand that. So we need to think about that a very great deal. So when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. Verse 16, he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick, 
that it might be fulfilled, notice, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. He's simply quoting what I just read. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Christ healed these people. Some scholars read this prophecy in the Old Testament, a lot of Protestants, and they try to say, well, that just means a general forgiveness or they spiritualize it away. But Christ didn't spiritualize it away. He literally healed people's physical sicknesses and he said, that's what this scripture means. That's what it means. He took our physical illnesses and our sicknesses. And so a little later, Verse 23, he got into the boat, his disciples followed, suddenly a great tempest arose. It's called the Great Rift Valley down through there, and they get heavy winds coming down through the Sea of Galilee in that area, and they had great big windstorms on this big lake, and he was asleep. Jesus didn't go around, you know, like Hollywood, uh, charge on, or, you know, like they picture George Washington in the prow of the boat, like he's there ready, you know, raising a cane or something like that. But he didn't always sit and do that. Jesus got tired. He was a human, fleshly human being. He was tempted in all points like as we are. So when he got tired, he just flopped down in the boat, took a nap. He was only 32 or 3 years old. He wasn't an old man. He just took a nap. It's all right. But his disciples didn't think it was all right on that occasion. They were scared to death. So they woke him up. They said, Master, don't you care? We're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you so fearful? Now again, brethren, let's not just read it. Let's think about it. Here is the Son of God, puzzled in a way. Why can't human beings really trust God? What's wrong with us? God says, I am your rock. I am your shield. I am your protector. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But when we get sick or we in trouble, we, oh, my, oh, my, you know, whatever. We tend to be like that. I do too. That's my human nature just like yours. So I don't mean I'm as weak as I was 60 years ago, but I have that same tendency. I have to fight that. That's the way we are. Why? What's wrong with us? Oh, you of little faith. He went on to say, now his disciples did not yet have God's spirit because the day of Pentecost had not yet come. Then he rose and rebuked the winds in the sea and there was a great calm. So it was a magnificent what he did and showed the power of God. But those disciples had a hard time believing in that power. Chapter 9, here Jesus got into the boat, verse 1, crossed over, came to his own city and he they found a paralytic, a man totally paralyzed, lying on a bed, and Jesus seeing their faith. He could see they brought this man, and Mark's account, or one of them shows how they apparently let, if it's the same account, right down through the tiles of the roof. But they brought a paralyzed man, and he said, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. Well, why did he say that? Because forgiving physical mistakes... A lot of you eat a lot of white bread and greasy gravy and junk food and doctored food and stuff you shouldn't eat. And God doesn't want us to do that. We're to try to get away from that as every way we can. We really should try to take care of ourselves. But many of us have not done that the way we should, and it catches up with us for after a while. So please understand that. Healing the sick, getting over physical suffering and sickness is a type of spiritual forgiveness of spiritual sin. 
You know, Mr. Armstrong used to call it physical sin, and some of the liberals that came in and took over made fun of that. Well, I don't make fun of it. It doesn't say that directly, but certainly is that it is that in principle. It is a type of physical mistake. God says we're to glorify Him in our body, and if we don't do that, that is the principle of sin. He says, what's the difference if I say be healed or your sins are forgiven? And at once some of the Pharisees, the self-righteous ones, said, oh, he's blaspheming, but Jesus knew how they thought. He said, why do you think evil in your thoughts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say arise and walk? The same principle, God can forgive your spiritual sins and make you spiritually whole and get rid of the wrong attitudes and the lusts and the vanity and the hate and clean you up that way through His Spirit, or He could apply the Holy Spirit and the stripes of Jesus Christ to your physical body. By His stripes, we were healed. And He can heal your physical mistakes. So He said, what is different? Uh... But that you may know, verse 6, that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said, Arise, take up your bed, go to your house. And he did. And when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Now, he didn't give it to all men, but they knew Christ was a man and he was right there. They didn't fully realize, of course, that he was God in the flesh. They just knew he was a great prophet. And so they marveled that God had given such power to men. Jesus went about, as we know, healing people of every sickness and every disease. Turn now to chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10. Turn over just one chapter here. Chapter 10, verse 1. He called the twelve disciples and he gave them power over unclean spirits, demons, to cast them out and to heal what? Some kinds of disease, AIDS, nobody can heal AIDS. We know that, Epstein-Barr and all these other incurable diseases. Of course not. There are no such things. God is God. He can heal anything. It does not make any difference to God. And we've got to just, I know you know that, but it's good to focus on that and brand that into our brains. It does not make any difference to God. He can heal anything, anytime, if He wants to. So he gave them power to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Then he named the twelve and sent them out. And he said in verse 7, as you go, here's the threefold commission he gave them, which in principle we ought to follow to get back to the apostolic Christianity, the original Christianity. As you preach, say, the kingdom of heaven or as Mark, Luke, and John call it, the kingdom of God is at hand. So we're to preach about that coming kingdom. Second, heal the sick. That's the second thing he told them to do. That was part of the Great Commission, part of the gospel. Heal the sick. Thirdly, cast out demons. And then he puts in there in the middle, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. And, of course, leprosy is a form of sickness, so he's simply describing it. And I might point out one thing to you that I did at the council, and some of them agreed they looked it up, and I've been setting that it, that raise the dead, if you have it in the mar margin as I do, it says M, that is the majority text, the received text that we use that is the most correct Greek text of the New Testament leaves that out. He did not tell them to raise the dead. So that's not a basic part of it. 
We know that Peter raised one dead person, but he didn't go around raising the dead all the time. And Paul only raised one, and Jesus raised three or four. We don't know that he kept raising the dead all the time. That was unusual. So the three things he told them to do primarily, heal the sick, cast out, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. Those three things over and over in your Bible. He said the same thing to the other 70 also, 70 other young men he sent out, 35 teams of young men, and he told them the same thing. This is Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 10 or whatever it is. Luke 10, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. That's part of the gospel. Then you turn over, if you would, to First Peter. And here, I just want to read what I indicated before. First Peter chapter uh, 2 and verse... Uh, 23 he's talking about christ suffered and he did not threaten but committed himself to those him who judges righteously christ verse 24 who himself bore our sins in his, his own body to the tree so he was crucified that we having died might live to righteousness by whose stripes you were healed this is a different part well, the Protestants, I grew up in the Methodist church. They probably read this verse once in a while, but they just read right over like it's all the same thing. They don't understand the difference. There is forgiveness of physical sins through the stripes, the horrible beating that Jesus Christ took and that scourging. And then beside that, there is spiritual forgiveness of our sins through the death of Christ. The wages of sin is death, Romans six twenty three. The death penalty and Christ paid for our spiritual sins by shedding his blood. When that soldier rammed that spear in his side, the blood gushed out. And he became the ultimate Passover lamb to the shedding of his blood and the giving of his life in place of our life. So we have a deep appreciation for that, I hope. We've got to understand that it's a two-part sacrifice. And both of them ought to be honored because God intends that. Now turn back to Matthew 27, if you would, at this point. Matthew uh, chapter 27. And I'm going to turn back here uh, to Matthew chapter 27. And you'll notice, brethren, in beginning in verse 22, Matthew chapter 27, beginning verse 22, Christ is on trial here with Pilate. And Pilate's talking to these Jews who were accusing him and wanting them to crucify him. And Pilate said, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. They all wanted to get rid of him because the leaders, especially the Sadducees and Pharisees, that was their playhouse. He was, he was messing up their playhouse. They were in charge. They were the big shots. And the more he preached, the more the brethren were turning to him. And they were upset by that. He was a threat to the establishment. And brethren, as we get stronger and this work gets stronger and more powerful, and we're not there yet at all, but who's going to attack us the most? Probably the religious leaders. Others will as well. But you'll be surprised how these very nice men hate to have their playhouse messed up. And they're the ones that attack Christ the most. Who did Christ condemn the most in the Bible? You think about it. What is the strongest condemnation? against the, the, the harlots, the tax collectors, the adulterers. No, read it in the whole chapter of Matthew 23. 
And he described there and elsewhere, he said, even the harlots and the tax collectors shall go into the kingdom of God before you guys, that is, the religious leaders, were hypocrites. They knew better. They should have known better, and they partly knew better, but they compromised, they compromised, they compromised, and they would not preach the whole truth. And you had the keys of the kingdom. You threw them away, Jesus said. You prevent those entering God's kingdom because you're teaching wrong doctrines and cutting them off from God. They come to men who claim to be God's representatives and they get their mind all confused. Christ hates that. False ministers. Those are the main ones responsible for what's wrong today. The ultimate big bad guy, of course, is Satan the devil. But Satan has ministers. And then under those ministers, they've influenced the educators of this world who've got the whole modern world believing in evolution. And the British, I like it, they call it evolution. <laughs> Evil, evolution, that's the way they pronounce it. That's what it is. And this whole humanistic secularism that they're into today. But they're cutting men off from a knowledge of the true God where we don't think about God. God is not real to us and this kind of thing because of our wrong leaders starting with religious leaders who should know better. But at any rate, Jesus described this situation here and then uh, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he could not prevail, but rather a tumult was rising, he took water, washed his hands before the multitude saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. Pilate sensed, as one of the scriptures says, that for envy they delivered. They were jealous of Christ. You see to it. And all the people yelled out, His blood be on us and on our children. And that was awful. And they've suffered horribly ever since all over this earth. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus... He delivered him to be crucified. And, of course, the reference in the Bible here is back to Isaiah where we were reading. The scourging was an official Roman whipping just before they were putting a man to death. And somehow they wanted him to suffer, not just quickly die. So they had either one or two big, strong men who were called lictors. I think it's spelled L-I-K-T-O-R-S. We get, you know, to a boy, we say, you better straighten up, Johnny, or I will give you a licking. You look that up, the word licking comes from lictor, which was an official Roman whipper who was skilled in how to use this cat and nine tails, this big whip with long uh, 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 leather strands with little cleats of metal in it and go all around them. Then they jerk and the hide would come right off. So when Christ was finished and it was beating, he probably did like raw meat, not like a normal man. He did not look like a normal man when they got through with him. And we have to understand that. He went through that. Did he go through that in vain? Or can we believe that God, our Father, allowed his own son to be down there, the one he'd shared eternity with, and see him being torn apart? And Christ had to go through that. That's the reason he went down before God that night, the previous night, and he fell on his face. Father, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. Work it out some any other way. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He'd send me beaten probably, 
They had men crucified up and down the Roman roads. He'd seen them yelling and screaming and hollering and finally moaning just before they died, hanging there sometimes four to six days, just rotting until their stomach would swell up and the intestine just burst out. It was a horrible, slow, agonizing, horrible death. He knew what was ahead. God in His mercy cut it short after Christ. That part was only lasted six hours. And I used to say this Italian soldier uh, rammed a spear in his side. It was a Roman soldier, but brethren, the Romans were noted for having a conscript army. That is, they would hire men from all over the world. I like Italian food, and I like Italian music, and a lot of Italian people. I've had very dear friends, so it might not have been an Italian at all. It might have been a man from Britannia. It was one of their colonies over in England. It might have been a man from Germania. It might have been a man from the Middle East elsewhere. And it might have been a man from Africa. We don't know. We don't know. God guided an, un, an unknown man to perhaps hear Jesus moaning or something and put it in his heart. Oh, shut up! And jammed his spirit in his side, which was an act of mercy. He didn't mean it that way probably. But it just caused Christ to die right away rather than hang there several more hours or several more days. So God caused it to be all done at the exact time that he had indicated by the Passover. So he was hung on the stake at 9 o'clock and the actual blood spurted out at 3 o'clock in the afternoon when they could traditionally the hour of prayer and the hour of the, after the evening sacrifice when they normally would have killed the Passover lamb. So that's interesting. God caused all that to work out in that way in his mercy and in his wisdom. And so we do have and ought to have deep feeling about that suffering Christ went through and giving his life. But he also gave his body for us in that scourging. And so Pilate said, you take him and scourge him and then we'll crucify him. And so then they crucified him, of course, and he died for our sins. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 11, brethren. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want us to read something here that we read from time to time, but I need, we, we need to focus on it to understand it better. In verse 23, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, people have all these arguments, you know, about when to keep the Passover. And certain groups of the church of God have tried to say we're wrong and we ought to keep it on the 15th and blah, 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 blah. Well, it's very simple when you just read this one verse. It says right here, inspired in the word of God, verse 23, for I received, Paul writes, from the Lord. So he was given this directly by Christ, probably over in Petra in that three years when he was being taught directly by Christ that which I delivered to you, so he taught the Corinthian church this, that the Lord Jesus, when, when, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. That's when he took the Passover, on the night in which he was betrayed. What night was that? Well, all the rest of the Bible shows clearly, and most even the Protestant and Catholic and other groups theologians, they know that that was the night before the Jewish Passover. The Jewish Passover was the next night. So on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he, and he had given thanks. He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken. Now again, brethren, when you see or hear this words 
these words next spring at the Passover, try to remember what it's talking about. Broken, well, you know, I used to hear some of that in the Methodist church, never any explanation as to what it meant. Broken, what do you mean broken? Christ's body was torn apart. And he must have been literally shaking and getting ready to faint in exhaustion or a trauma when this beating, when these big men got through whipping him and tearing the hide right off of him. His, his body is broken for us. The bread represents his broken body. This is my body which is broken for you. When we take that broken bread, that symbolizes those stripes of that whip coming across Christ's body and his body was broken for us to pay for our physical mistakes. Do this. This is a memorial service. We're commanded to do this in remembrance of me. Thinking about what Christ did on our behalf. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, so the bread comes first. Why does the bread come first? Well, because Christ was scourged that night. Then the next morning, he was taken out to be crucified. You see what I mean? Well, he was scourged in the early morning hours, but the scourging took place first. Then he was to be killed. So that's why you take the bread first. So then you take the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. So Christ came to propose a new covenant. It has not fully come into force with the world, of course, till Christ comes back. But it is being made with us ahead of time. We are the first fruits. We accept that covenant. We receive God's Holy Spirit. We have Christ living in us ahead of time. So this is that cup of the new covenant in my blood, the blood of Jesus Christ to pay for our sins, spiritual sins. This do. We're commanded to do it. As oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then again, some Protestants come along and they'll say, well, as often as you do it, that means you can do it every Sunday morning or once a month or quarterly. I think the Methodists do it quarterly. That is four times a year. And some people only do it once a year, but in the morning. Well, when did Christ do it? You know, all Christians agree. You say, we're to follow Christ. Oh, yeah, we're all to follow Christ. But they don't really believe that. They don't do it at all. They don't keep holy the day Christ made holy. They don't keep the Ten Commandments like Christ said. They don't keep the annual holy days like Christ did. And they don't keep the Passover like he said. They do it their own way. Everything else they do their own way. They do not understand what it means to literally follow Christ and have Christ live his life within you. So we are to do this as oft as you do it in remembrance of me. If I say as oft as you keep Christmas, it's good to have a, you know, a presence for your children. If I told someone in the Methodist church there, well, they, would, they wouldn't get that mixed up. They know Christmas comes once a year on December 25th. You see what I mean? All the people he knew or talked to knew, yes, Passover comes once a year. He's not trying to say do it whenever you want to. Do it once a year or do it in the morning. As oft as you do do this, what do you do it? You do it in remembrance of Christ. Because now the symbols of the uh, lamb and the bitter herbs have been changed to the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Whenever you do the Passover, whenever you keep it, and you should keep it, when Christ kept it, of course, at the appointed time, God said, do it in remembrance of me. It's a memorial service about what Jesus Christ did for you and for me. For as often as you eat this drink, bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. 
God never had us observe birthdays, but the basic thing they observed was the Passover, a memorial of Christ's death, not someone's birth. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, or we can include an unworthy attitude, in other words, you just drink it, it means nothing. No, the whole point is to have a deep sense of reflection of contemplation, of deep uh, thankfulness to God that the Son of God emptied Himself coming from way out in the heavens, came into this human flesh to die for us and to help reconcile us to the Creator of the heavens and the earth and that we could then walk with God and have God's Holy Spirit in us and God could work with us and teach us and fashion us and mold us through the Holy Spirit and through the tests and trials and ups and downs of life so we could be like He is and be full sons of God someday. And He's working with every one of us in that way, all who are really converted and understand. So, brethren, we have to understand this. So we're to examine ourselves and have that deep understanding that the Son of God coming from outer space, if you want to look at, emptied Himself of the power, the glory, the magnificence that He had had with the Father and came into the human flesh, knowing his own race would reject him and say, oh, who are you? Later, men would kill him, the Jews and the Gentiles. It's interesting how God guided that. He guided it where the Jews were the ones that provoked it to be done, and yet the Gentiles were the ones that actually carried it out, the Roman Empire. They did it. They killed him. But it wasn't necessarily an Italian. It was some unknown man from somewhere, and we don't need to know. God didn't tell us. So both sides of the humanity are represented here in that sense. If God used to divide them that way into the Jews and the Gentiles, we all help kill Christ. So he who eats and drinks without understanding the profound meaning of the Passover and of the bread drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. And very clearly, he's talking about what? He's talking more about the fact that many people don't really think about or discern or have deep faith in Christ's broken body. So they're weak and sickly, and many died prematurely. Prematurely, many sleep. Some of you might think, and I'm talking to you, brethren, down in Perth, Australia, and Johannesburg. Hi, guys. <laughs> I should talk to you more often than you're there over in Britain and Europe and Central and South America, all our brethren around the world. But we need to realize this applies to all of us. And God wants us all to learn that his son died for us and gave his body that by his stripes we were healed and have a profound feeling for that. And that we need to realize that even if the Apostle Paul were here today, you say, boy, you're kind of weak, Mr. Meredith, and Mr. Ames and Dr. Nail and all of us, especially Mr. League, he's the worst one of all. I'm kidding. We, we persecute each other. But anyway, we aren't having all these healings here in the local church. What's wrong? Well, if the Apostle Paul were here, he told his church, he was not their only pastor, but as the church he was over, he said, many are weak and sickly among you. Even in the apostolic times, they didn't have perfect faith and they did not have perfect healings. 
and many died prematurely. And I don't want any of you to get alarmed or leave you. We want to have more healings. But do remember, brethren, in case I forget to say it later, God says God gives men uh, three score and ten years. And most men today, men and women, live a little longer. But the vast majority of human beings die somewhere between 65 and uh, 85. And some few live in their upper 80s and some few die a little before. You know what I mean. We don't all die at exactly 70. But about that time, most men have died. And so it's not strange if God does allow some of our older ministers and brethren to die at age 68 or 72 or 75 or 81 or whatever it is. So we need to understand that and not get alarmed. Still, we should pray for them and pray for these dear brethren in God's church. Some of them are older that we're concerned about right now. Some are not. But we do need to ask God to give them a full life and that God will give everyone all the years we need to learn the lessons He wants us to learn so we could be in His kingdom forever. Some of you may think I'm against old people as the old people are going to die. Well, I am old myself, so you probably could figure that out. And uh, we just uh, have to be realistic about it. You know, I've said if, if uh, he got to heal, if everyone could get to the minister just before they died somehow, we have the telephone and even our cell phones people carry all the time and all the rest of it. Well, well pray for me right now. And then you're healed. And then a couple of years later, you get to be 82. Then pray for me right now. And then you get to be 88 and 92. And pretty soon, at some point, God lets people go to sleep, right? <laughs> you, might, you might get to the minister, but he might not make you live to 150. So he does allow people to die, and we do understand that. But it's good to, good to understand it without, you know, giving up on God. So many had gone to sleep to death prematurely, for if we would judge ourselves, we would be judged. We have to discern and have faith in God and also learn the lessons to quit sinning, quit spiritually sinning, and quit sinning in our physical breaking of God's laws, eating you know, junk food and getting fat and, and getting sick all the time because of wrong diet and lack of exercise and all the other things. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord. God does allow physical weakness to come on us, to chasten us, to teach us lessons, to humble us that we may not be condemned with the world. So try to understand that part of it too. Whenever someone gets a cold, you don't need to think that God suddenly sent a lightning bolt and gave you a cold. That's not necessarily so. He may have let you bring something on yourself, but He doesn't always heal it right away until you start learning lessons and this kind of thing. So we want to understand the spiritual ramifications of all these things and uh, learn every lesson that God wants us to learn. Some could say, well, Mr. Meredith, God let you get a stroke, so God got you. Well, yeah, he got me when I was 78 years old. And most people don't live that long in good health and go running their mile or two at the Y every night up until age 78. So at some point in your late 70s or 80s, something will probably go wrong. So don't die of shock if that happens <laughs> because we do get old and things do happen. But nevertheless, God is working with me and teaching me lessons through this. He allowed it to happen, and He will allow these things to happen to you. 
So try to be careful. Do your part. Another little couple of points I want to put in your thought here because many of you here in this room and around the world are, are new brethren. I know that. Remember, God, the church today does not condemn people who go to the doctor. I think you should not go to the doctor right away the first thing every time. If your child has a broken bone and you can't get the minister, then go to the doctor right away. That's fine. But every time you feel bad, the first thing you should do is what? Call the minister. That's what the brethren used to do. Call the minister. But if you have something serious that hangs on and you sense there's something you might need to find out, you could get a doctor's advice to see what you should do. And then you have to decide how much to follow what the doctor says. And we've given talks on that. It's not wrong to have an operation. It's not wrong to take a medicine. But you should be careful because every single medicine, every single drug has side effects, most of them very bad. And the doctors all admit that. You read my booklet on healing, and I think I start out in that booklet. Isn't that in the beginning? I believe it is where I start out with this example from a young woman doctor who had just graduated from medical school and the, the uh, president of the whole medical school gave the commencement address and he said, well, we've taught you a lot about um, uh, drugs and medicine and, and doctoring and he, he said, unfortunately, about half of it's wrong, we find out later, and we don't know which half. Wow, <laughs> that's what he said. We don't know which half. I didn't read this as a funny book. I read this in the Wall Street Journal or some very reputable source, and we put it in that book. Read that, my book, that Does God Heal Today? They know that. They're, that's why they call it practicing medicine. Practicing medicine. So you've got to use your mind, use the brain that God gave you, eat good food, think positively, don't be all torn up with hate and resentment all the time, and get exercise and get enough sleep and take care of yourself and then try to eat, do natural things if you can. But if it's something really serious and God guides you through thought and prayer to be sure you should get find out something serious, it's not a sin to do that either. And you have to decide where to draw the line. Why can't the ministry draw the line? Well, we used to more than we should way back in the early days. But you have to do that. That's up to you because we don't know all the details and you have to figure that out. You know where to draw the line. It's your body. You figure it out. Another thing Mr. Armstrong told us several times, many times, in healing, God does not tell us how or when. God will sometimes supernaturally heal immediately and like he did my warts, he anointed them and it was a month or two later when they dropped off. You know, you'd think, well, he would say, be healed, leave warts. You know, I used to watch Oral Roberts on the radio or TV and some of these guys, be healed, and hit them on, they'd hit them on the head, you know, and they'd flop backward and they're healed, he'd say, right now, and all this stuff. Well, of course, God doesn't always do it that way. And many of those healings are fake. I saw there, I won't dwell on that, but they're no more, you know, healings than Mickey Mouse or Bugs Bunny would do. And uh, most of you know that if you've checked up on those things. But anyway, we have to use the minds that God gave us. Let's turn back to James now, chapter 5. James, if you would, uh, in here, chapter 5 and verse 13. Again, most of you are, of course, extremely familiar with this, I hope. James 5. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. 
Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing psalms. And the ancient servants of God used to just literally sing songs. Remember Paul and Silas when they were thrown in prison? They literally were singing aloud in the prison. They just knew those songs by heart and sang them. And all of a sudden, God opened the prison doors and let them out as, as a miracle. But at any rate, is anyone among you sick? So are you sick? What do you do? What does God say? Get the doctor real quick. No, he says, is any sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Call for Mr. League, the elders who have time and hopefully full time to do this. And if they're busy or you need to or are right with us anyway, you could call for some of us older guys, the evangelists or those, but we sometimes are so absorbed with uh, our writing and, and running the whole work and meetings, we can't do that as much as we would like to. But I do enjoy it once in a while, sincerely, and not be cut off from it. Call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, notice anointing him with oil. And again, we've explained to you, and the Bible shows that olive oil in the Bible is used as a type. It's not a magic potion. It's just a type, a reminder of the Holy Spirit. So we have a little bottle of olive oil. I have mine in my briefcase. I used to carry it in my pocket, and they used to have these watch pockets, and they don't even make them in our suits anymore. And uh, I use mine so seldom. I just keep it in the briefcase. But anyway, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. So it is to be done how? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the authority of Jesus Christ, the Lord, and the prayer of faith. So we are to grow in faith individually and as a church. We'll save the sick. That's what it says. It says that. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven. And brethren, I wanted to mention a while ago, and he doesn't always tell us the exact way or when, Sometimes the when might be years later. Sometimes it would be in the resurrection. And people can say, well, ha-ha, that's a, that's a, a, you know, a cover-up. Well, God doesn't need any cover-ups. But there are times when he decides not to heal you now for a very good reason. So anyway, he may heal and heal all of us when we're given spirit bodies in the resurrection. But the answer may be no or wait. Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another. Why? Notice that you may be healed. So part of it has to do with physical healing. You confess, you, the Catholics use this to confess your sins to the priest. You don't need to confess your sins to us ministers. If you're counseling for baptism, you can tell us you're sorry for sins. But I don't need to know about every time you got drunk or if you're in the Navy, every time you had a a sex problem or something. The minister doesn't need to know all those those stories. That's not our needed. If you want to say something to help us understand or pray for you harder, so that's up to you, but we don't need to know that. But you do need to tell each other, just as I tell other brethren sometimes, if I'm really sick or some of you tell me or your friends, I really have a flu or a bad headache, pray for one another that you may be healed that you have brethren praying for you, not that spiritual sins are forgiven by telling the priest, but that you talk to your brethren and they pray for you. And certainly if you have a serious sickness or a cold that just won't go away, then go to the minister with it, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer. Again, notice, brethren, the fervent prayer, not just a bedtime prayer, 
But the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And God does answer powerfully quite often in these situations. And we need to be very grateful and very thankful for that. Back at Big Sandy, again, we had big lines of people. I remember we would have people coming. And back in those days, the brethren did not know how to eat. And Mr. Armstrong used to get on them more than I have here today by far. He was more of a father figure, and they took it from him. And uh, he'd say, you brethren are eating all this starch and all this grease. And you, they were all there in the south, here in the south here. I pick it on you too. But you brethren around the world, he'd tell them about it. And, and finally, as we had local churches, not near as many were sick because they were taught the laws of health. But I remember we'd have these little folding uh, wooden chairs and lines on each side of the aisle. And then they'd move forward. And Uncle Paul and I would be in one booth and Herman Hay and Raymond Cole in another and Raymond and Marin in another booth and we'd have the different booths they come. It was amazing how many people were healed that had sicknesses and flus and all kinds of things and we were very grateful that God he did heal so many people because the truth was new and exciting and people did have a great deal more faith, I think, in general in that time. Turn now, if you would, back to Mark chapter 11 the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to begin in chapter 11 here in a very wonderful passage that one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible on, on healing, on, on uh, faith. Mark 11, brethren, and he's talked about a fig tree. He cursed this fig tree, Jesus did, and in the morning... The next morning they passed by and they saw the fig tree dried up with the roots. The very next morning was completely dried up. And Peter, remembering, said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you curse has withered away. So this is Mark chapter 11, verse 21. So Jesus answered, verse 22, and said to them, Have faith in God. Peter was sort of surprised. He said, Wow, he was saying in effect, it's already dried up. He said, have faith in God. Of course it is dried up. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will come to pass, he will have whatever he says. Well, now you've got to ask in faith, and you've got to ask according to God's will. If you read the booklet on prayer, you know, the 12 conditions of answered prayer, you'll see that. But there are cases when, you know, Elijah walked right through the water, not just Christ. And then Elisha came along and he walked right back through the Jordan River and the water parted hither and thither, it says in the old King James. It didn't, he didn't move a mountain, but he could. He just caused the water to stack right up. They did do those things, human beings, not just in the New Testament. The time may come, brethren, if God is going to bring us to a place of safety, supernaturally, some of us may need supernatural help in getting there. And God can cause anything to happen He wants to. And we may be surprised at what God will do if you and I can learn to grow in faith and honestly prove to ourselves that there is a real personal God up there who is our Father. He's our Father who's made us in His image he loves us. He wants us to be full sons of God and His family and with Him and interact with Him and with Jesus as part of the creating family forever. And He's working with us. He's teaching us. He's fashioning and molding us. 
the time may come when we will be given the power to do some of those things. And there will be a need to do some of those things, to dry up the water, to cause a cloud to come between us and the Egyptians, so to speak, the enemy. Some people are chasing us and suddenly a cloud comes down. We don't know what it's going to be, but God can do it. Remember, his servant woke up one day, Elisha's servant, the one who succeeded Elijah, and uh, Elisha had been apparently doing some things that worried the king next door. So this pagan king comes and surrounds his house completely, and here's this old man with one servant, no guns, no nothing, and his servant said, uh, 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 my master, my master, uh, the whole house is surrounded by armies, and so to speak. What are we going to do? And so Elisha said to God, open this young man's eyes that he may see. There's an old Protestant hymn, remember, open my eyes that I may see things that come from there, whatever it is. They had a whole hymn on that. They don't know what it means. And so the young servant's eyes were opened and the whole mountain was filled with angels and chariots of fire. He saw things that no man normally ever sees. Magnificent sight. What's going on all around here? He suddenly saw the spirit world. The spirit world that is here in this room now or nearby because so many of you are really converted and God has his angels nearby. Will God let me or you ever fall down and skin our shin? Yes, of course. He lets things happen, but he will not let bad things happen that would wipe us out ahead of time. If we're doing our part, he will keep us alive. He will work with us. He will teach us and guide us. He will fashion and mold us. He will protect us. He will deliver us. Yes, he will heal us to keep us alive enough years and days to learn the lessons that he wants us to learn and to do the work that he wants us to do. Am I going to be here another five days or five years or 15 years? I don't know. I don't know. And you don't know either. I've had the feeling as I've talked to God that it will be a few more years just because of many circumstances. I've asked God to show me. My wife is sick right now, by the way. Mr. League said you could all come over there. Well, if you want to get the terrible flu, you could do that. But she isn't here because she's coughing all over the place. She has this flu or virus, and she is coughing and her whole body shaking, and she has a sickness of that sort. Some of you have had it about as bad as I've ever seen her in all 34 years of our marriage. So it's really hurting her, and David has it too. And... uh Mrs. Uh, Powers was telling me she, you had it three weeks, I think. She said it wouldn't go away for three weeks. So a number of you have had it. It lasts sometimes 10 days or two weeks. Uh, some have had it even up to three weeks. But at any rate, we have to go through these things, and God will deliver us. But God has protected me from it. My mother used to say, knock on wood, but that's pagan. So I won't knock on wood, you know. <laughs> I could get it tomorrow, but in His mercy... I'm encouraged because God, for this entire three years and three months I've had the stroke, I've not had one single cold. I have not had one single flu or one single virus. He's probably thinking, my servant Rod Meredith has enough at this point. I'll leave him alone except for the stroke. (laughs) He's my father. He's letting more of my hairs fall out and turn white and whatever. He lets me bang my hands around here because they're a little bit numb and I don't. I don't uh, control them as well as I used to with a stroke. But he's not giving me flus or colds. Am I eating a lot better? No, a little bit better. 
but frankly, and a whole lot better. I had a piece of chocolate last night, and a couple of nights ago I had a dish of ice cream because my wife and I found that my blood sugar doesn't seem to go down or go up, I mean, very much as long as I only have one or two little dishes of ice cream a week. If I thought it was going to send me out with as a diabetes, I wouldn't do that. So I, I try to live somewhat normally, but God has taken care of me now, so he's in charge of our lives, so we don't have to worry. I used to feel sorry for old people. I really did. And I, I thought these old people are getting old and they're going to die. And all of a sudden, my friend Dick Armstrong died at the age of, get it, 29. He was 29, and that blazed into my brain. I thought, I don't need to worry about Mr. Hoyle and Dr. Winnell, Dr. Uh, <laughs> uh, the other medical doctor we had there and uh, these other men around the college who were older because I could die before them. We don't know. We could die at age 29 or 23 or kids dying at age 18 and, and uh, so on. You know what I mean? And, and car wrecks and all kinds of things. We want to trust in God. But brethren, we do need to ask him for healing because he tells us to. He wants us to. It's part of our Christian growth to sense that our Father is guiding our lives, protecting us overall, and that he will heal us the vast majority of the time in this life. In this life. If we put our faith and trust in him. So let's do that. Notice back in uh, uh, verse 7. I'm going to get another verse here. I get... Uh, oh, I just I was just starting this. He said here, the fig tree is cursed. He said, have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will come to pass, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, this is God speaking, Whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Now, brethren, that's not just the power of positive thinking. The uh, Christian scientists take that all out of context. But if you have that real commitment, I'm going to trust you, God, no matter what, and you mean it, you're going to get tremendous answers to your prayers in every phase of life, including healing. But notice this one caveat, verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, don't carry grudges. Don't carry grudges. Don't go around hating and wanting to get even and bitter down on me and I'm going to be bitter and bitter and bitter and bitter. It will kill you. Don't do it. Please don't do it for your sake. If you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses, then he will forgive you, including physical healing. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. So understand that. You've got to forgive others. That is such a powerful part of our relationship with our Father in heaven. Now notice back in chapter 9, brethren, Mark chapter 9 now, and I'm going to turn here to verse uh, 17. Uh, in chapter 9, one of the multitude answered and said, Mark 9:17, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. It seizes him and throws him down. A demon was just throwing this young man here and there. And I brought this 
child to your disciples, but they could not cast it out. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless generation. You notice Jesus' attitude. What's wrong? Why can't people trust in God? Bring him to me, he said. And so Jesus then healed him finally. The, young, the man said, The Father, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. In verse 24, he cried, I don't have perfect faith. Jesus had mercy. And so then later the disciples asked him privately, verse 28, they asked, Why could not we cast him out? So Jesus said, verse 29, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. There are certain things that God will hear more through prayer and fasting. And as Mr. League said, brethren, we are calling a fast, and I have talked to our, all our leaders here about it in our executive lunch and even later to the Council of Elders, and they all agreed. One or two churches we've heard have some social, they can change it. Somewhere on earth, someone's always got something every Sabbath, you know what I mean. But unless it's a super powerful thing, we want to do this. Prayer and fasting. Some of you may have something the next day or the day before. You can still fast on that day. And that was the best day overall we found, December uh, the 17th, that Sabbath day, Friday night to Saturday evening. Prayer and fasting. And so we are asking God Almighty to intervene and begin to heal these dear people who are hurting. We have a whole bunch of people, as you know, who are hurting some of our are close to death. We have Mrs. Paul Shumway up here who has this uh, growth, a tumor going right toward the stem of her brain, which is potentially fatal. We have here in our local area Mrs. Bonjour who has bone cancer, very serious, and that would be fatal unless God heals her probably. Uh, we've had Mrs. Stevenson right here, Glenda Stevenson, who has cancer and very bad through a good deal of her internal organs and has to have God to heal her supernaturally. And we have my wife who has this terrible flu. That's not as threatening. I'll just throw it in, though. We want to pray for all these people with everything. We have Mr. Wayne Pyle we've been praying about for over a year, and God has helped him, kept him alive, strengthened him, and he has already been better in certain ways, but continue to pray for him because if God does not work with him, then he could lose his life. He knows that. We have down south uh, Mr. Bob Howington, a very leading man and now a deacon in God's church who has cancer which has moved down and they've taken out lymph nodes and it's moving on down in various parts of his body and he is in danger of death unless God heals him. Further south we have Mrs. Jack Lowe, our minister in Atlanta is Mr. Jack Lowe. Judy Lowe has cancer uh, in her body, I think it's in her liver, wherever. I forget where all these cancers are, but her cancer is potentially fatal. I talked to her at the feast. And again, she'll be dead unless God heals us as far as we know. We're talking about life and death. Please pray for these people. Further south, we have Mr. Fitzroy Greeman down in the Caribbean. And I think it's down there. It's a kidney thing, isn't it, uh, Mr. Scott Winnell? So he has this thing that could be fatal, I guess, if God doesn't heal it. So it's very serious. All around the world, we have things like this. It seems like more than area that we know, more than ever that we know about. So we need to ask God's help. We need God's help. We need God's healing. 
And I pray that you, brethren, will join in wholeheartedly. I ask you, brethren, around the world, let's seek God for the sake of these people and for the sake of God's church at this day of fasting. Turn back, if you would, to Joel chapter 1 now in your Old Testament, as we call it. Jesus called it the Word of God. Joel chapter 1. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. So he's talking about the spiritual leaders. Wail, you ministers, before the altar. Come lie all night, you ministers, for the grain offerings and the drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Instead of the grain offerings and the wheat, wheat drink offerings, we might put the healings. We might just stick that word in there. The healings are being withheld to some extent because of our lack of faith and we have tended to degenerate in that for the last 50 years and I have lived to see it happen. And I, I mean that. I'm not just making it up. I've remarked about that year by year or decade by decade how we saw this thing changing, how people used to believe in healing more. So what do you do? God commands, consecrate a fast. That's what we're doing. We are consecrating in the name of Jesus Christ a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders, all the inhabitants of the land of the house of the Lord your God, and cry out. So we're to cry out to God. He says over here in chapter 2 and verse 12, Now therefore says the Eternal, Turn to me with all your heart. I've told you this in the past, brethren, but one thing Mr. Armstrong mentioned quite a number of times he said, I know our people are sincere. They're trying to keep the Ten Commandments. But I feel that one of the greatest weaknesses in the prayers of God's people today is that they do not put their hearts in their prayers. And he paraphrased with a Moffat translation, uh, Hosea 7:14, where people do not put their hearts in their prayers. They cry out to me, it says in the King James, without their heart or something. But if they do not. As Moffat translates it, it obviously means they do not put their hearts in their prayers. So he says, turn to me with all your heart. With how? With fasting. God says it again, fasting and weeping and with mourning. And brethren, as you pray to God, we're not going to be Pentecostals and holler and scream, but it's not wrong to get excited about it. It isn't. To put your being into it. Say, Father in heaven, these people right here, they need your help. Some of them are going to die within the next year unless you intervene. Please hear our prayer. Please wake us up as a church. Help us to get on the ball. Help us to seek you. We mean it. We need more healings. And we do, brethren. We really do. So put your heart in your prayer with fasting, with weeping and mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. If we cry out to God like that, brethren, God will hear. Has God gone way off? I've told you, no, God has not gone way off. We've had wonderful healings in the past. I've told you about Howard Clark. He used to sit right along the right wall when I was preaching for five or seven years. A quadriplegic shot up in the Korean War. And had to sit there. Mr. Davis, I'm sure, has seen him. He just sat there and sat there and sat there year after year. Couldn't move virtually. All of a sudden, over Pentecost weekend in 1958, he was anointed by Dick Armstrong, got right up and began to walk around. I've told you the story, so I won't better not tell you the rest of it, but 
it's kind of amusing how I kind of checked up on him and so on, and he showed me he could get up and walk. And that very autumn, he was in the wedding reception of another man and picked up a child in each arm and was rocking right now and carrying, bouncing a child in each arm just six or eight weeks later, the guy who couldn't even get up out of a wheelchair. I've told you how Raymond Manera and I were on the baptizing tour and met this lady with a withered arm all shrunk up about one-fourth the normal size, like a rope. And she sent Ann for an anointed cloth from Mr. Armstrong. She was not a Pentecostal. She was not hooping and hollering. She had nothing to gain. We'd already baptized her. We were about to leave. She just said, fellows, maybe it would be encouraging to tell you this. And her Baptist or Presbyterian or whatever Protestant friend was with her. She thought, I'm going to meet these strange young men, you know, from Mr. Armstrong and wanted another woman just to be her company. The woman wasn't being converted either. But she, I said, do you, do you remember her? Do you know she had, oh yeah, I grew up, she was always like that. And he sent her an anointed cloth and the arm grew right out. I've seen those things, brethren. God heals today. I had one of my married students, Dennis Brady, come with tears in his eyes. He missed the freshman class and caught me in the lobby right afterward up in the academic center and said, Mr. Meredith, I had to miss class today because my little daughter is dying. What? Well, I had a little daughter then, so I had a great deal of compassion, more than I might have had. It was good that I had a little daughter first, I guess. But at any rate, he said she's dying of spinal meningitis. It was a fatal variety going around. Dennis Brady's little daughter. I've never forgotten it. He said, would you come and anoint her? So there was a phone. They even there in the sort of the lobby or whatever it was. And I went over and called my secretary, said, cancel all this, whatever it is I'm supposed to do. So I went out to his house and anointed the little girl. And she was pale and she'd been shaking and like that and going back and frothing at the mouth. And I prayed fervently because I had a little daughter just about that age. And then she went to sleep. And they didn't know she'd be healed. We stayed there and she just seemed to go to sleep pretty quickly. But the mother called me the next day and she said, Mr. Meredith, she said, my little daughter slept 14 hours or 16 hours or whatever it was. And she said she woke up and was hungry. She'd never been hungry for several days. And now she's playing and she's fine. And that Sabbath they had her in church. And I went up, oh, I wonder if she still has. I didn't have perfect faith myself. I thought it might be dangerous. She said, no. She reminded me. She said, you know, God healed her, so she's got to be all right. And she was all right. Her mother brought her right to church two or three days later. God heals today. So we do want to be grateful for what God does and not ever, ever give up on God. But, brethren, we've got to create an atmosphere of faith. And I'd better not read all my scriptures about that to keep you here but remember back in Mark chapter 6, turn with me at least briefly here to Mark chapter 6, and let's begin in verse 3, when Jesus went home. Mark 6, 3, they said, Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and his sisters are here? And they were offended at him. And Jesus said, A prophet is not with honor, without honor except in his own country and among his own relatives. People say, Oh, well, who's he? He can't do anything. Now Jesus could do no mighty work there. Even the Son of God could do no mighty work except that he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Not his unbelief, but their unbelief. And Matthew, of course, if you turn to the Scripture in Matthew 13, 58, 
you're taking notes, Matthew 13, 58, he says they were not healed because of their unbelief. My brethren, we have got to create an atmosphere of faith. And if we in this church pray, if we have this day of fasting, and then follow through on that day of fasting, and cry out to God, put our hearts in our prayers, beseech God for healing, ask God to forgive us as a church, Help us get over the resentments and the bitterness and the weakness and the sin and the vanity to scrub us out, clean us up, make us like he is. Father, help us. We want to be right so your people can be healed. Please help your people to be healed. We will get answers.